Chapter 14 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collingwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The ladies make a discovery, and Bob distinguishes himself. It was a most delightful day for a walk, the ladies averred enthusiastically, and their enthusiasm was quite justified. The azure of the sky overhead was relieved by a bank of soft, dappled, fleecy clouds, which served in some measure as a screen against the ardent rays of the sun and a gentle breeze from the westward imparted a feeling of freshness to the air, whilst it wafted to the pedestrians the subtly mingled perfumes of the thousand varied plants and flowers which flourished in the deep rich soil of the island. As the ladies walked quietly on up the gently sloping valley toward the hills, their enjoyment increased with every step. Hitherto they had only ventured abroad at night, and lovely as the landscape had appeared in the clear mellow radiance of the moon, the soft silvery light boldly contrasted with broad masses of rich grey-brown shadow. They agreed that it was incomparably more beautiful when viewed by the full light of day and in all the glory of brilliant sunshine. A thousand gorgeous colors on leaf and blossom, on gaily-plumaged birds and bright-winged insect, charmed their eyes and enriched the foreground of the picture, while the dense masses of foliage, with their subtle gradations of color, light, and shade, as they gradually receded into the background, and finally melted into the rich purply gray of the extreme distance, balanced and harmonized the whole, completing one of the most beautiful prospects perhaps upon which the human eye had ever gazed. Their spirits rose as they walked steadily onward and upward, breathing with intense enjoyment the strong, pure, perfume-laden air, exhilarating in its effect as a draught of rich wine, and temporarily forgetting in the pleasure of the moment not only their past sufferings, but their present and future perils. They chatted merrily and arranged a hundred plans, many of which, could they but have known it, were destined never to attain fruition. Hitherto they had been following a faintly defined track in the luxuriant grass, a track which had always up to the present determined the direction of their longer walks. But arriving at last at a point where this trail turned abruptly off, and passed down a gentle declivity apparently toward the sea on the eastern side of the island, they determined to abandon it, and, tempted by the shade, to plunge boldly into a broad expanse of park-like timber which spread before them. The welcome shade was soon reached, and, somewhat fatigued with their ramble, they seated themselves at the foot of a gigantic cork-tree, and in the rich green twilight shadow of its luxuriant foliage, discussed the luncheon with which they had had the forethought to provide themselves. The luxuriant grass which had hitherto carpeted the earth here gave place to graceful ferns in rich variety, interspersed with delicate mosses of velvety texture, and here and there, in the more open spaces, small patches of a heath-like plant with tiny waxen blossoms of a tint varying from the purest white to a dainty purple. The silence of the forest was broken only by the gentle murmur of the wind in the treetops, and the soft rustle of the foliage overhead, save when now and then a twittering bird flashed like a living gem from bough to bough. And there was a low, deep sound vibrating on the air, which told of the never-ceasing beat of the surf on the island's rock-girt shore. Rested and refreshed, the ladies at length rose to their feet once more, and continued their way through the wood. The ground soon began to rise steeply, and after nearly an hour's steady climbing, they emerged once more into the full and dazzling sunlight to find themselves standing on the edge of a steep rocky ravine through which, some fifty feet below, 
there flowed a tiny stream of crystal purity. The rocks were of a character quite new to them, and, ignorant of geology as they were, they would doubtless have passed them by without a second glance, had they not been attracted by a peculiar glitter here and there upon their surface, which proceeded, as they discovered upon a closer inspection, from the presence of minute particles of a dull yellow substance embedded in the stone. But what chiefly riveted their attention was a small, basin-like pool with a smooth, level, sandy bottom, as they could clearly see from their elevated standpoint. The water appeared to be about two feet deep, and the basin itself was roughly a, a circular form, about ten yards in diameter. That it was obviously intended by nature to be used as a bath was the thought which flashed simultaneously through the minds of the three fair gazers, and as each one glanced half-timidly around, only to feel reassured by the utter absence of any indication of probable unwelcome intrusion, the thought speedily found vent in words. "'Just look at that pool!' exclaimed Mrs. Staunton. "'What a delightful bath it would make!' "'Oh, Mrs. Staunton,' said Blanche, "'do you know that is exactly the thought which occurred to me? "'I feel tired, and I should so enjoy a plunge "'into the beautiful, clear, cool water. "'Do you think we might venture?' "'I do not see why we should not,' was the reply. "'What do you think, Violet?' "'I think it would be nothing short of a luxury,' answered Violet. "'I too feel tired, and I am sure it would refresh us. "'I am not afraid, if you are not.' "'Then let us risk it,' said Mrs. Staunton, "'with a sudden show of intrepidity, "'which was, however, only half-genuine, "'and, each borrowing courage from the companionship of the others, "'they hurriedly scrambled down the rocky slope, "'and in a few minutes more were flashing the bright water "'over each other like naiads at play, "'their clear laughter echoing strangely "'among the mighty rocks of the ravine.' The water proved to be much deeper than they had supposed, being quite four feet deep in the center of the pool, which rendered their bath all the more enjoyable. The sand was, on the whole, beautifully fine, white, and firm beneath their feet, but occasionally they experienced a sensation of treading upon small, hard, roughly rounded objects among the finer particles, and finally Blanche encountered a lump so large and hard that, curious to see what it could be, she, with a motion of her foot, swept away the sand until the object was exposed to view. It seemed to be a rough, irregularly shaped pebble, somewhat larger than a hen's egg, of a dull yellow color, and reaching down her arm, she plunged beneath the water and brought the odd-looking object up in her hand. "'What a curious stone! And how heavy it is!' she remarked, holding it up to view. Her companions came to inspect it, and Mrs. Staunton took it in her hand to make a close examination." "'Stone!' she exclaimed excitedly. "'Why, my dear girl, this is gold! "'A genuine nugget, unless I am greatly mistaken. "'Mr. Thompson, a friend of my husband's in Sydney, "'showed us several gold nuggets, "'and they were exactly like this, "'only they were none of them nearly so large.' "'Do you really think it is gold?' asked Blanche. "'My dear Mrs. Staunton, my dear Violet, "'only fancy what a delightful thing it will be "'if we have actually discovered a gold mine. "'Why, we shall be able to present our husbands with a magnificent fortune each. A charming blush mantled the speaker's cheek as she said this, notwithstanding the fact that by this time the three women had no secrets from each other. I wonder if there are any more, remarked Mrs. Staunton. Surely that cannot be the only one here. I fancy I stepped on something hard just now. The three women at once went groping along the sand with their feet, and not in vain. First one, and then another, encountered a hard object which proved to be similar in substance to the one found by Blanche, and in a quarter of an hour they had between them collected upwards of a dozen of them, 
though one only, found by Mrs. Staunton, exceeded in size that of the first discovery. Then, feeling somewhat chilled by their long immersion, they returned to terra firma, and were soon once more wending their way homeward. In passing through the wood they contrived to lose their way, but, as it happened, this proved of but slight consequence, as though they eventually came out at a point nearly a mile distant from the pathway which they had followed in the morning. They were quite as near the settlement as they would have been had they faithfully retraced their original footsteps, and by four o'clock in the afternoon they found themselves once more within the shelter of the walls of Staunton Cottage, greatly fatigued, it is true, by their long ramble, but with an elasticity of spirits and a sense of renewed life to which they had long been strangers. Meanwhile, the party at the shipyard had been thrown into a state of unwanted excitement by an incident which at one moment threatened to have a tragic termination. A strong gang of men were at work upon the rock, all, indeed, who were left upon the island, excepting some dozen or fourteen, most of whom were employed in providing for the daily wants of the others, such as in baking bread, cleaning out the huts, airing bedding, and so on, and the scene at the mouth of the harbor was therefore a tolerably busy one. Captain Staunton was in charge of the shipbuilding operations, with Kit as foreman-in-chief, while Rex and Brooke were superintending operations at the battery, the former with a roll of rough-and-ready drawings in his hand, setting out the work, while the latter overlooked the construction of a lime-kiln. Bob was making himself generally useful. It was while all hands were at their busiest that Lance put in an appearance, leading little May by the hand. She, of course, at once made a dash for, at her father, flinging her tiny arms round his neck, kissing and hugging him vigorously, and showing in a hundred childish ways her delight at being with him. And the unwanted sight of the pretty little creature created quite a temporary sensation. A large majority of the men there were steeped to the lips in crime. Yet there were very few among them, who had not still left in them, hidden far down in the innermost recesses of their nature, and crushed almost out of existence by a load of vice and evil-doing, it may be, some remnant of the better feelings of humanity, and their features brightened and softened visibly as they witnessed the delight of this baby girl at finding herself with her father, and looked at her happy, innocent face. Her visit was like a ray of sunshine, falling upon them from out the bosom of a murky and storm-laden sky, and as she flitted fearlessly to and fro among them, they felt for the moment as though a part of their load of guilt had been taken from them, that in some subtle way her proximity had exercised a purifying and refining influence upon them, and that they were no longer the utterly vile, God-forsaken wretches they had been. Fierce, crime-scarred faces lighted up with unwanted smiles as she approached them, and hands that had been again and again soaked in human blood were outstretched to warn or remove her from the vicinity of possible danger. For the first few minutes Captain Staunton had been anxious and apprehensive at her unexpected presence among the ruffianly band, but his face cleared, and his knitted brow relaxed as he saw the effect which the sight of her produced, and when Lance joined him he said, "'Let her alone. She is doing more in a few minutes to humanize these men than you or I could achieve in a year.' The child was naturally interested in everything she saw, and with tireless feet she passed to and fro, pausing now and then to gravely watch the operations of some stalwart fellow hewing out a timber with his adze, driving home a bolt with his heavy maul, or digging into the stubborn rock with his pickaxe, and not infrequently asking questions which the puzzled seaman strove in vain to answer. At length, having satisfied her curiosity by a thorough inspection of all that was going forward, 
she wandered down to the spot where the hulk had been broken up. This was a tiny sheltered bay or indentation in the rocks, and a large raft had here been constructed out of the dismembered timbers and planking, which were kept afloat in order that the powerful rays of the sun might not split and rend the wood. Two or three detached planks formed a gangway between the raft and the rocks, and along these planks May passed on to the raft, without attracting the attention of anyone, it happening that just at that moment most of the hands were summoned to tail on to the fall of a tackle which was being used to raise one of the timbers into its place. Gradually she strayed from one end of the raft to the other, and presently her attention was attracted by a curious triangular-shaped object which she saw projecting out of the water and moving slowly along. She wondered what it could possibly be, and, in order the better to see it, ran nimbly out upon the end of a long plank which projected considerably beyond the rest. So eager was she to watch the movements of the strange object that she overshot her mark and with a splash and a cry of alarm fell into the water. The triangular object immediately disappeared. Luckily at this instant Bob glanced round, just in time to see the splash caused by May's involuntary plunge and to note the simultaneous disappearance of a dark object in the water close at hand. Divining in a moment what had happened, he set off with a bound down the sloping rocky way toward the raft, shouting as he went, A shark! A shark! And May has fallen overboard! For a single instant there was a horror-stricken pause. Then tools were flung recklessly aside. The tackle fall was let go and the timber suffered to fall unheeded to the ground again. And the entire gang with one accord followed in Bob's wake, hastily snatching up ropes, boat hooks, poles, oars, anything likely to be useful as they ran. Meanwhile, Bob, running with the speed of a hunted deer, had passed, as it seemed to the spectators, with a single bound down the rocks and along the entire length of the raft, from the extreme end of which he plunged without pause or hesitation into the sea. A bright momentary flash, as he vanished beneath the surface of the water, seemed to indicate that he carried a drawn knife or some such weapon in his hand. Simultaneously with the disappearance of Bob, May's golden curls reappeared above the surface, and the child's aimless struggles and her choking, bubbling cries lent wings to the rescuing feet of those who had listened again and again unmoved to the death screams of their fellow men. Another moment, and there was a tremendous commotion in the water close to the child, first a sort of seething whirl, then a dark object flashed for a moment into view. There was a furious splashing, a darting hither and thither of some creature indistinctly seen amid the snowy foam, and then that foam took on a rosy hue which deepened into crimson. The commotion subsided, and Bob appeared once more on the surface, breathless and gasping. With a couple of strokes he reached May's side, and half a dozen more took him alongside the raft in time to deliver her into Captain Staunton's outstretched arms. "'Unhurt, sir, I believe. Thank God!' Bob gasped, as he delivered up his charge and then, when the little one had been raised out of the water and clasped with inarticulate thanksgivings to her father's breast, he added, "'Give us a hand, some of you fellows, will you? And heave handsomely, for I believe my leg's broke.' "'Lay hold, boy!' And a dozen eager hands were outstretched to Bob's assistance, foremost among them being that of a great black-bearded fellow named Dickinson, who had formerly been Bosun's mate on board a man-o'-war, but who had deserted in order to escape the consequences of a sudden, violent outburst of temper. Lay hold! Bob grasped the preferred hand and was brought gently alongside the raft. Now then, exclaimed Dickinson, assuming the direction of affairs, 
Kneel down on the edge of the raft, one of you. You, Frenchy, you're pretty handy with your flippers. Kneel down and pass your arm under his legs, as high up as you can. Say when. Are you ready? Then lift, gently now, and take care you don't strike him against the edge of the raft. So, that's well. Now, lift him inboard. That's your sort. Now, off jacket, some of us, and let's sling him. He'll ride easier that way. Are we hurting you, my lad? Not much, thank ye, answered Bob cheerfully. There, he added, as they once more reached the rocks. That'll do, mates. Lend me down here in the shade and tell Mr. Evelyn I'm hurt, presently, you know, after he's brought the little girl round. In the meantime, Lance, almost as much concerned as Captain Staunton, had hurried after the latter and offered his assistance, which was thankfully accepted. But there was very little that needed doing. So prompt had been Bob in his movements that the poor child had never actually lost consciousness, and after a great deal of coughing up of salt water and a little crying, May was so far herself again as to be able to call up a rather wan smile and, throwing her arms round her father's neck, to say, "'Don't be frightened any more, Papa dear. May's better now.' Great seemed to be the satisfaction of the crowd of men who had clustered round the group as they heard this welcome assurance, and then in twos and threes they slunk away back to their work, seemingly more than half ashamed that they had been betrayed into the exhibition of so human a feeling as interest in a mere child's safety. "'If the little un's all right, mister, you'd better have a look at the chap that pulled her out. His leg's broke, I think,' remarked Dickinson's gruff voice at this juncture. "'His leg broken? Good heavens, I never dreamed of this!' exclaimed Captain Staunton. "'Poor fellow! Poor Robert! Let us go at once and see what can be done for him, Evelyn.' "'You'll find him there under that rock,' remarked the ex-boson's mate, in a tone of indifference, indicating Bob's resting place by a careless jerk of the thumb over his left shoulder as he walked away. Captain Staunton and Lance rose to their feet, and, the former carrying his restored darling in his arms, went toward the spot indicated. They had gone but a few paces when they were overtaken by Dickinson, who, with a half-sulky, half-defiant look on his face, said, "'I suppose I can't be any use, can I?' If I can, you know, you'd better say so, and I'll lend you a hand, and let me see the man that'll laugh at me. I ain't quite a brute, though I dare say you think me one. I like pluck when I see it, and the way that boy jumped in on the shark was plucky enough for anything. If it hadn't been for him, Skipper, that little galley yorn have been a goner and no mistake. You are right, Dickinson, she would indeed. Thank God she is spared to me, though. You can, no doubt, be of the greatest use to us." And as to thinking you a brute, I do nothing of the kind, nor does Mr. Evelyn, I am sure. I believe you make yourself out to be a great deal worse than you really are. Well, Robert, what is this, my boy? Is it true that your leg is broken? I am afraid it is, sir, answered Bob, who looked very pale and was evidently suffering great pain. But I don't care about that, so long as May is all right. She is, Robert, thanks to God and to your courage. But we will all thank you by and by more adequately than we can do now. Let us look at your leg. That is the first thing to be attended to. Will you allow me, Captain Staunton? interposed Lance. I have some knowledge of surgery, and I think my hand will be more steady than yours after your late excitement. The skipper willingly gave place to Lance, and the latter, kneeling down by Bob's side, drew out a knife with which he slid up the left leg of the lad's trousers. A painful sight at once revealed itself. The leg was broken halfway between the ankle and the knee, and the splintered shin-bone protruded through the lacerated and bleeding flesh. Captain Staunton felt quite sick for a moment as he saw the terrible nature of the injury, and even Lance turned a trifle pale. 
a compound fracture, and a very bad one, pronounced Evelyn. Now, Dickinson, if you wish to be of use, find Kit the carpenter and bring him to me. The man vanished with alacrity, and in another minute or two returned with Kit. Lance explained what he wanted, a few splints of a certain length and shape, and a supply of good stout spun yarn. "'Do you think Raleigh would give us a bandage or two and a little lint from one of his medicine chests?' asked Lance of Dickinson. "'If he won't, I'll pound him to a jelly,' was the reckless answer. And without waiting for further instructions, the man ran down to the water, jumped into the dinghy, and, casting off the painter, began to ply his oars with a strength and energy which sent the small boat darting across the bay with a foaming wave at her bows and a long swirling wake behind her. In less than half an hour he was back again with the medicine chest and all its contents, which he had brought away bodily without going through the formality of asking permission. The splints were by this time ready, and then began the long, tedious, and painful operation of setting and dressing the limb, in the performance of which Dickinson rendered valuable and efficient service. The long agony proved almost too much for Bob. He went ghastly pale, and cold perspiration broke out in great beads all over his forehead seeing which the boatswain's mate beckoned with his hand to one of the men standing near and whispered him to fetch his dickinson's allowance of grog the man went away and soon returned with not a single allowance but a pannikin full of rum the result of a spontaneous contribution among the men as soon as they were informed that it was wanted for bob with the aid of an occasional sip from this pannikin the poor lad was able to bear up without fainting until lance had done all that was possible for him and then Dickinson and three other men, lifting him upon a strip of tarpaulin lashed to a couple of oars, carried him down to one of the boats, and jumping in with Lance and Captain Staunton, who could not be persuaded to trust May out of his arms, pushed off and rowed him down to the bottom of the bay. About a couple of hundred yards from the rocks, they passed the body of a great dead shark floating belly upwards upon the surface of the water. The creature appeared to be nearly twenty feet long, and the blood was still slowly oozing from three or four stabs and a couple of long, deep gashes near the throat. The mouth was open, and as the boat swept past its occupants had an opportunity to count no less than five rows of formidable teeth still erect in its horrid jaws. Captain Staunton pressed his child convulsively to his breast as he gazed at the hideous sight, and Dickinson, who pulled the stroke oar, averred with an oath his belief that there was not another man on the island with pluck enough to tackle such a monster. "'By the by, Robert,' said Captain Staunton, "'you have not yet told us how you came to break your leg. Did you strike it against the timber when you jumped overboard, or how was it?' "'No, sir,' said Bob. "'It was this way. Just as I reached the end of the plank, I caught sight of the brute rushing straight at May. I could see him distinctly against the clean sandy bottom, and he was not above six feet off.' so I took a header right for him, whipping out my sheath-knife as I jumped, and luckily he turned upon me sharp enough to give little May a chance, but not sharp enough to prevent my driving my knife into him up to the hilt. Then I got hold of him somewhere, I think it was one of his fins, and dug and slashed at him until I was out of breath, when I was obliged to let go and come to the surface. The shark sheared off, seeming to have had enough of it, but in going he gave me a blow with his tail across the leg, and I felt it snap like a pipe-stem. And, instead of making for the raft, you swam at once to May, thinking of her safety rather than the pain you were suffering, said the skipper. Bob, you are a hero, if ever there was one. This is the second time you have saved my child from certain death, 
and I shall never forget my obligations to you, though God alone knows whether I shall ever have an opportunity to repay them. I say, mister, I wish you wouldn't have quite so much to say about God. It makes a chap feel uncomfortable, growled Dickinson. Does it? said Captain Staunton. How is that? I thought none of you people believed in the existence of such a being. I can't answer for others, sullenly returned Dickinson, but I know I believe. I wish I didn't. I've tried my hardest to forget all about God, and to persuade myself that there ain't no such person, but I can't manage it. The remembrance of my poor old mother's teaching sticks to me in spite of all I can do. I've tried, he continued with growing passion, to drive it all out of my head by sheer deviltry and wickedness. I've done worse things than e'er another man on this here island, hain't I, mates, to his fellow oarsman. Ay, ay, Bill, you have. You're a regular devil sometimes. A real out-and-outer and no mistake, were the confirmatory replies. Yes, Dickinson continued, and yet I can't forget it. I can't persuade myself, and the more I try, the worse I feel about it, and I don't care who hears me say so. Well, you seem to be in earnest in what you say, Dickinson, but I really cannot believe you are. No man who really believed in the existence of a god of justice could continue to live a life of sin and defiance, said the skipper. Wouldn't he? fiercely retorted the boatswain's mate. Supposing he'd done what I've done and lived the life I've lived, what would he do? Answer me that. Come up to our hut next Sunday morning at eleven o'clock, and I will answer you. What? Do you mean to say that you'll let me in, and then women folks there too? Certainly we will, said Captain Staunton heartily. We are all mortal, like yourself, and the ladies will not refuse, I am sure, to meet a man who feels as you do. Then I'll come, exclaimed the man, with a frightful oath, intended to add emphasis to his declaration, and then, as the boat's keel grated on the beach, he and his mate sprang into the shallow water, and lifting Bob in his impromptu stretcher carefully upon their shoulders, they proceeded with heedful steps to bear him toward the hut. Now there, remarked Captain Staunton in a low voice as they hurried on ahead to get Bob's bunk ready for him, there is an example of a human soul steeped in sin, yet revolting from it, struggling desperately to escape, and in its despair only dying itself with a deeper stain. It is a noble nature in revolt against a state of hideous, ignoble slavery. And I pray God that I may find words wherewith to suitably answer his momentous question. Amen, said Lance fervently, raising his hat reverently from his head as the word passed his lips. In another ten minutes they had poor Bob safely in the house and comfortably bestowed in his berth. The medicine chest had been brought back in the boat and was soon conveyed to the hut, and while Lance busied himself in mixing a cooling draught for his patient, Dale, to the intense astonishment of everybody, voluntarily undertook to prepare some strengthening broth for him. The man's supreme selfishness gave way, for the moment, to admiration of Bob's gallant deed, so immeasurably beyond anything of which he felt himself capable, and, genuinely ashamed of himself, for perhaps the first time in his life, he suddenly resolved to do what little in him lay to be useful. When Lance came downstairs for a moment after administering the saline draught, he found Dickinson and his three companions still hanging about outside the door in an irresolute manner, as though undecided whether to go or stay. He accordingly went out to them and, with an earnestness quite foreign to his usual manner, thanked them warmly yet courteously for their valuable assistance. Lance never forgot that he was a gentleman, and was therefore uniformly courteous to everybody, and then dismissed them, adding at the last moment a word or two of reminder to Dickinson as to his promise for the following Sunday, 
which he emphasized with a hearty shake of the hand. The boatswain's mate walked away down to the boat silently, and in a seemingly dazed condition, holding up his right hand before him, turning it over and looking at it as though he had never seen it before. He never opened his lips until the boat was in mid-channel when, resting on his oar for a moment, he said, "'Well, shipmates, you've heard me say today words that I wouldn't have believed this morning I could find courage to say to any human being. Now I'm not ashamed of them. I won't go back from a single word. But you know as well as I do what a rumpus there'd be if it got to be known that there'd been said what's been said this afternoon.' I don't care about myself, not a single curse. You and as many more fools as choose can laugh at me until you're all tired. But mind, I won't have a word said about them. If this gets abroad, they'll be made uncomfortable. And I won't have it. Do you hear, mates? I won't have it. The first man that says a word about it, well, with a powerful effort to curb his passion, the best thing he can do is to take to the water and swim right out to sea, for the sharks will be more merciful to him than I will. "'All right, matey, all right,' good-humouredly answered one of the men. "'You needn't threaten us. No occasion for that. "'We're not going to split on your old man. "'Perhaps, if the truth was knowed, "'there's others beside yourself "'as don't feel particular comfortable "'about this here piratin' business. "'I won't mention no names. "'And anyhow, you may trust me not to say a word "'about what we've heard today upon it. "'And there's my hand upon it. "'And mine. And mine.' "'The preferred hands were silently grasped with fervor, and then the oars were resumed, and the boat sped on her way to the shipyard. End of chapter 14